Hey friends, Tyler here with a special announcement for pastors and ministry leaders. On May 7th and 8th, Bridgetown Church will be hosting a pastor's gathering for ministry leaders and other pastors uh, around the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a postmodern context. We're going to tackle themes like listening prayer and prophetic ministry, creating a culture of response and encounter. And we want to do so among like-minded leaders ministering in a similar context who are going after the same things. So if that's you and that sounds interesting to you, Come and join us on May 7th and 8th. Registration is live right now, and you can find more information at, at the website that is dedicated to this, bridgetown.church training. Hope to see you in May. Please make your way to Luke chapter 7. I'll begin reading to us today, beginning in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, and so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, brother. Hello, Bridgetown Church. You guys give a hearty welcome. I love that. Uh, Tyler, thank you so much, man, as he walks out of the room. Hey, buddy. I'm just kidding. Thank you. Yeah. But <laughs> it's really good to be with you. Um, uh, I've been able to be here for a couple days, and this is a very welcoming community. I feel like home, and uh, I'm just really grateful uh, to be here. And, and Tyler, I'm really grateful for your friendship, buddy. Thanks. Um, so um, my friend Scott goes to three AA meetings a week, and I met Scott about four years ago when he came into our little church plant on the west side of Columbus, Ohio. And at the time, uh, Scott had three years sobriety, and so he had um, found his higher power. First, God came to him in a light in his imagination. I know it sounds a little crazy, but this is what happened. Um, and then he grabbed onto God in an experience he had with the Redwoods out in 
Northern California, but it was in the church. It was in our church with hurting people who were experiencing the love of God, where Scott experienced the presence of God and he received his inheritance as a son of God and he gave his life to Jesus. Much better than the Redwoods. (laughs) I love the Redwoods. So in the middle of 2020, we baptized Scott in a horse trough in the park. And shortly after that, Scott began going out onto the streets in our neighborhood, um, just a little further west of us, Um, And he just offered to begin to pray for people on the streets. It's a really hard area of our town. And shortly after that, Scott began to host a prayer night uh, for people on the streets that he turned into a pizza gathering that he calls prayer and pizza. Very creative. (laughs) And so this is where people walking the streets on their way to the next trap house can stop in for a few slices of pizza and receive prayer. This is, part, this, this is Scott's current life. This is what his life looks like right now. But part of Scott's story is that he used to own a company on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He sold it many years ago for lots and lots of money. He stayed on as a C-level you know, person making lots and lots of money. But underneath everything that was happening externally and behind the closed doors of his corner office suite, he was doing cocaine on his desk at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday. And as these things go, his life fell apart. His business and his marriage, his entire life just began to become obliterated. And he spent the next several years spending every last dime on drugs. So a few weeks ago, Scott was telling me about the last few items that he had from his former life, his New York City life. Um, An expensive belt, called a Burberry belt. Anybody ever heard of a Burberry belt? I've never heard of that. Um, a, a Prada tie. And a solid silver money clip from Tiffany's. I, I've never heard of any of those. I don't live that kind of life. But uh. So the reason that this story came up is that Scott was trying to get this one guy, Jermaine, off the street. And this guy didn't really want to go into treatment because he had a dog. And, you know, if you've ever met some folks that are struggling with addiction and maybe in and out of homelessness... You know, a dog's a really big deal. And so Scott was trying to get this guy, Jermaine, into treatment. And he thought to himself, man, if I just take the dog in, maybe Jermaine will go to treatment and then I can like give the dog back. And, and uh, it didn't really work out that way. Um, so I'm sitting at lunch with Scott, which I do twice a month. And there's a pit bull at his house wreaking havoc. A pit bull from the west side, no less. And I'm going to leave out a lot of details of the story um, that Scott told me, but the pit bull found his Burberry belt and his Prada tie and completely destroyed them. And his 17-year-old daughter um, looks at him, uh, she lives with him, and she looks at Scott and says, Dad, it's almost like every part of your former life is slowly disappearing. That belt and that tie aren't even who you are anymore. Burberry belt, Prada tie, and a pit bull finding the last two items from his former life. I'm going to briefly come back to this story, but it is the second Sunday of Lent, and uh, last week, Tyler began a Lenten teaching series called uh, In His Image, or like looking at the the image-bearingness of God that we have, and he talked about desire and Jesus's often repeated question, what is it that you want me to do for you? And I want to talk with you this morning about about shame. 
and you're thinking to yourself, how quickly can I get out of here? I want to talk with you this morning about shame and the way that from the very beginning, God has placed inside of us a remedy for the feeling that we have that we are somehow unworthy of receiving the things that we want Jesus to give us. That's what shame is. And shame isn't necessarily explicit in our teaching text this morning. It sits sort of underneath the story and it's part of the backstory because shame has a way of lingering and hiding in plain sight. Shame is the, is the part of our life that we can still carry, even though it really belongs to our former life. It hangs around like a Burberry belt and a Prada tie, and God is the most gentle pit bull that you can ever imagine. And he finds the lingering parts of our old life that are filling us with shame, and he heals them with his love. So if you like a five-minute sermon, that's it. But we're gonna go a little deeper, and we're gonna linger here a little bit around the story So shame is very simply that feeling that we have that something is wrong with us. It's that feeling that you have that something is wrong with me. And listen, my sense is I prayed uh, over the past couple of weeks for our time together. My sense is that there is some of you this morning that are going to experience the love of God in a new way that you have never experienced. And God is going to begin to remove some shame in your life. And sometimes that happens like really quickly in moments like this where we open up ourselves to God. And sometimes that just begins in a moment like this, but then it takes a long time to unravel. Does that make sense? So you might be somebody in the room for whom like something really miraculous is going to happen. I, I hope that happens. You might be some, some, somebody in the room that gets a tiny little deposit today that begins to help you trickle out the shame in your life. So our text this morning is a story about a woman who shows up at a dinner party and eventually creates a little bit of a scene. And the question that I have found myself wondering about this passage as I've read it recently is how did the woman even get into the room? How did she get there? She's not dining at the table. She's not an invited guest. She's clearly out of place. And Luke offers us a little bit of commentary as he tells the story. He tells us that that this woman is known as a sinner, as an immoral woman, and she's probably a prostitute, which means that she's a complete social outcast in the same category of people that Jesus has been hanging around. The bedridden, the leprous, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. She's in good company. So scholars tell us that this is the kind of dinner party where the home would have been large enough and the outside gates would have remained unlocked so that others could sort of wander in and linger on the outskirts of the room to try to catch and listen to the teacher at the table. So there's some hospitality on on display here by the host because the gates have been left open and people have been able to to wander in, but we later learn that the host didn't even wash Jesus' feet. So that hospitality is a little bit suspect, or as my kids would say, it's sus. (laughs) Hey, I'm learning, okay? Do you guys know this? Do they say this out here? All right, a little bit of a break here. Uh, There's an entire new vocabulary I'm trying to catch up on. So nonetheless, the the guests um, have wandered in and they're hanging around the exterior of of the dinner to, to at least try to hear what the teacher has to say. So they would have been eating dinner and having some conversation. And so the people on the outside are like, I wonder if we can be quiet enough to hear what's happening at the table. The invited guests, they're, they're lying down. They're like reclining 
in a way that we would probably never do as we eat, but maybe like what you would do at a picnic. Like you would like lay down on a, I was thinking about maybe doing it just to show you, but I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> they would be lying on like a recliner like this and, and they would be around a table. And so then uh, their feet would have been pointed to the outside of the room at the edge of their reclined bed. And the candlelights and the lamps would have been on the table and it would have illuminated the food that they were eating and the faces and so that they could have a conversation while others who have come in from the outside, they fill up the spaces around the edge where it's dark. Don't miss that part. And they try to keep quiet so they can hear the conversation. And so the woman slips in and she is carrying a jar of perfume and she finds where the the bed and the recliner that Jesus is at and she stands behind him at his feet and holding the jar of perfume in her hand, she just begins to weep. And I don't think this is like wailing. You know, wailing is loud. This is more like those quiet tears that just sort of drop. Do you guys, do you guys know those tears? I, I kind of cry a lot, so like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know, I don't know what your crying routine is, but um, it's like those, like just those flowing tears. I mean, enough to wet somebody's feet. Like that's a lot of fluid coming out of the eyes there. And these kind of quiet tears, they flow from a really deep place, which is the first clue in my mind that perhaps she is holding a bit of emotion in her body. Maybe these are even tears of stored up shame that she has carried. And as those tears flow, she's standing over Jesus' feet while dinner conversation is likely still going on. She allows those tears to drip onto Jesus' feet and she begins to wet his feet with her tears. And the text says that she kept wiping Jesus' feet with the hair of her head and then she begins to kiss his feet and then she breaks out the perfume. Which means that whatever she was able to keep hidden by being on the edge of the room in the darkness, whatever way that she would have been able to weep quietly and maybe hide on the margins, this was no longer the case because the the scent of the perfume would have filled the air. The aroma would have filled the room and the attention would have come her way and so now everyone is probably looking at her, the woman. The woman known for her occupation, tear-stained face and hair down to her waist in a culture where women wore head coverings and to uncover your head was the sign of shame. And finally, Jesus addresses what is no longer a secret, the tears and the hair and the perfume. They all come into focus as he tells a brief story and he offers a brief teaching and then he finally makes mention of the woman and he says, do you see this woman? Do you see her? I remember more than a decade ago, uh, Brene Brown gave the whole world what turned out to be a gift but started with a really uncomfortable realization that she had uncovered in her research. How many of you guys know uh, Brene Brown? Not know her personally, but you've heard of her, okay. (laughs) If you know her personally, I would love an introduction. Um, We call her Saint Brene in our community. But the basic idea of Brene Brown's talk, which is entitled The Power uh, of Vulnerability, she explores the importance of vulnerability in human connection and happiness. And she shares her research on shame and the fear of vulnerability and how they hinder authentic relationships from happening. 
That initial talk that you can go watch on YouTube, it's been viewed more than 60 million times and it's birthed into our cultural awareness and our vocabulary and understanding of the way that shame has its way with us. And I remember listening to an interview a few years after that initial talk, an interview that she was giving on on TV and um, the television. Um, Just picturing myself watching an interview on TV, it just sounds so funny. Um, I remember listening to this interview and I remember her saying that every last one of us has shame. Every last one of us is carrying shame. And as she began to talk, I remember thinking to myself, wow, like, I don't really feel like I have a lot of shame. Like, I feel fairly well adjusted. I I don't feel incredibly insecure. I'm generally outgoing and feel fairly confident among my peers. And even in a room full of strangers, I I feel pretty good. And so there's this inner dialogue that's happening inside of me. And then my attention was drawn back to the interview where Brene is wrapping up her first point and she's beginning to move on to her second point. Every one of us has shame, she says. And the less you think you have of it, it means that there's a good chance that there is more than you realize. So that was unsettling. (laughs) Given the inner dialogue that I had just had with myself, I was having a bit of a moment. And I just blew right past it. I'm like, that's whatever, you know. And it wasn't until years later that I began to be able to see the way that shame has worked its way through my entire life. Shame sits underneath us. It's hidden. But it finds all of these different ways of leaking out. And some of the early church fathers, they talk about shame as the first negative psychological experience that gave rise to all sorts of ways of coping in an attempt to cover up that negative experience. And these, these, these ways of coping, they, they, they called them the passions. And you, maybe you've heard of them, and if you haven't heard of them, you've probably experienced them. They're things like gluttony and lust and greed and despondency, and anger, and this word called acedia. It's like that weird boredom that has us reaching for our phones like every five minutes, and vainglory, and pride. These are all of the different ways that this primal message of shame leaks out, but they all play the same tune. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And while we would almost never be able to say this out loud, what is driving all of those thoughts that you and I combat and all of the emotions that leak out sideways and the ways that we overreact to our kids or feel slighted at a meeting or the ways we overindulge in food and drink and sex and drugs and work and whatever it is for you, at the center of our soul is a sickness that more or less resides in the unconscious belief that there is something that is fundamentally wrong with me. And all of the temptation that we succumb to, that third or that fourth cocktail or the naked bodies on the internet or the outsized desire for a remodeled kitchen or the overbloated investment account, that stuff is the medicine that we can grab onto that we think will cure the sickness of that underlying feeling that there is something fundamentally wrong with me. And the really hard part about this story is that all of that stuff works. It really does. It numbs us 
to that feeling that's happening on the inside. And so as long as that stuff is working, we just keep going for it. It dulls the pain. But then if we're lucky, or to use a more biblical term, if we're blessed, we get to the point when we are at the end of our rope and we are poor in spirit, when all of the ways that we try to deal with the shame starts working, this is when we are ready to receive what the kingdom of God has to offer to our shame. And this is where the woman in Luke 7 finds herself. This is how she gets in the room. She gets in the room because somewhere along the way, she had an encounter with the love of God, watching it spill out into the world around her through the life of Jesus. The only thing that can heal your shame is the love of God. It's the only thing that can do it. Whatever her life had been up to in this moment, reaching for that little bit of perfume on a weeknight to attract the men as she walked the streets, was now the same perfume being poured out in a moment of worship and gratitude with no regard for what others might think of her. All of her hidden stories are now on display. The aroma fills the room. The invitation of God for you, friends, and for me, is that we would come out of hiding and allow ourselves to be seen by God and to be loved by God. It's really simple, and it's really hard to do. And the question that I'm really hoping that you can carry into this week and into the rest of our Lenten season is, is a question like this, am I allowing myself to be seen by God? Like fully seen. Am I allowing myself to be loved by God in the places of shame in my life? So just two parts that I'm gonna track down with you. Are you guys with me? Sweet. It's really good to be here with you. Two parts, hide and seek and being found. First up, hide and seek. Shame causes us to hide. Very simply, shame causes us to hide. And to pull a little bit from what Tyler was talking about last week, Regarding trauma, shame is a response to what trauma psychologist Gabor Mate calls big T trauma and little T trauma. You guys know there's two different kinds of trauma. There's the stuff that happens that's like car accidents and miscarriages and, you know, all kinds of big things that we can point to that says, oh man, that was a moment. And then there's these little T traumas that are like everyday life for us, like just little things that you know, we make meaning about a situation or we didn't get what we needed as a kid or whatever it is that, that we look back on and we're like, man, that's a painful place in my life. That's what Gabor Mate calls little T trauma. And so even if you've had nothing big and traumatic happen to you or around you, you could be suffering from shame as a response to the small little traumas that we face in the world on a daily basis. Whatever it is that you want to hide or whatever it is in my life that I want to hide, sitting underneath that hiding is shame. That's why we all have it because everybody has those things. And this is what is at the center of the story that we read from the very beginning in Genesis. It's at the very beginning of the, the, the tradition that we live in it narrates what it is like to lose paradise. Our first 
brother Adam and our first sister Eve, they, they found out that the way that they shifted their nature of their relationship with God, it primarily shifted the way that they felt about themselves. What follows on the heels of doing the one thing that God asked them not to do was the desire to hide. And so they hid. And they covered up with fig leaves. And the the Genesis story tells us that they made those fig leaves into coverings for the most intimate parts of their bodies. Because in that rupture in the garden, when they both took the fruit, they knew that they were naked and they heard the sound of the Lord in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid from God's presence. Where are you, says God. They heard the sound of the Lord in the garden because he went looking for them. And here is the gospel on the first pages of the scripture. The man and the woman felt shame, and so they hid themselves from the presence of God, and God came looking to find them. In his 2019 apostolic letter, uh, Pope Francis writes about the importance of the pastoral care of young people, and he talks about how shame is a common feeling that affects children and teenagers. And a bit of an aside, I don't know how in touch, I have teenagers, and I don't know if you guys have been reading about how the kids are doing, but post-COVID, guys, the kids are not doing okay. The teenagers, they're really struggling. And um, I think Pope Francis in this letter from 2019, he sort of, he like hits it on the nose when he's, he focuses this conversation around kids and teens because they're really struggling with shame right now. They're really kind of self-enclosed and pulling back. And he writes this in that letter. He says, shame is a feeling that can lead us to hide and to run away to withdraw into ourselves and to avoid others. It is a feeling that can make us feel small, guilty, worthless, and as though we do not deserve to be loved. So in our shame, we're we're playing this little hide and seek with God and with one another, but God comes looking for us. Just like Tyler talked about last week when Jesus came to look for Bartimaeus, it's the same good news. God is looking for you. He's he's chasing after you. Other other places in the scripture we read about uh, in the gospels that God is like a woman who loses two coins in her house and she tears her house apart to look for those coins and when she finds them, she rejoices with her neighbors. God is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. God is looking for you. So let's go back to the story in Luke chapter seven. What, What is hiding from God look like? What does it look like to hide from the presence of God and what does it mean for God to come looking for us? This whole story unfolds in the home of a Pharisee which we read about and hear about a lot in the Gospels and while the woman in this story is clearly the focus of the story, the person who Jesus addresses most is the host, it's the Pharisee. Did you notice that? Most of his conversation is with the guy hosting the party. 
And he says two sentences to the woman. He says, your sins have been forgiven and your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But everything else in the passage is said to the host, Simon the Pharisee, and the story that Jesus tells inside the story that we're reading, it's for him. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then Jesus goes on to tell a story about two people in debt who were unable to repay the debt and they had their debt forgiven. And one of them had a debt that was worth about six weeks of pay and the other had a debt about 18 months worth of pay. Which of them will love more, he asks. And of course, the host answers correctly. It says, um, he says, the woman, uh, or the one who, who was forgiven more. And then he turns to the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Which I take to mean, look at this woman. Look at the way that she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Look at the way she's kissing my feet and anointing them with perfume. Look at the way that she loves She loves much because she knows that she has been forgiven much. And when I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. All of which, by the way, would have been completely customary. This is not Jesus being a prima donna expecting too much. This would have been equivalent to like you arriving at someone's home and just having the natural cultural expectation that they would ask to take your coat and maybe offer you a drink. It's just basic hospitality. This is Jesus really gently saying to the Pharisee, you love little because you have yet to discover your own need for forgiveness. You're hiding from it. And all of this external stuff, this is how you hide from the place in your heart that you haven't let the presence and the love of God into yet. I mean, guys, this man's life was so well put together He had a home that he could host a big party in. He had the resources to do so. He had the public affection of his neighbors. He was in good with the powerful people. He probably had a book deal right around the corner. (laughs) And all of these things were in keeping with the way that Simon and those like him would have understood what it meant to be in relationship with God. You gotta have all of the things buttoned up. And so in his mind, he was doing everything right. I mean, guys, these are the people who would grow mint and dill and cumin in their garden, and then they would harvest these little herbs. Imagine this, harvesting the herbs and then weighing them on a scale and then taking 10% of those tiny little herbs, bringing them to the temple to offer as their tithe. Everything was really buttoned up. Everything was right. And everything on display was catching the eye of everybody in town. But the kind of nearness to God that is emotional and intimate and welcomes God into the hidden parts of our life, this can only come when you know how much the love of God has done for you. And this is what the woman knew. And this is how she got into the room. She's no longer hiding The only thing that can free us from shame is the love of God. It's the only thing that can do it. And this is how you know that you've begun to become free of shame is when you stop coming, 
When you, when you come out into the open and you stop hiding what's really happening in your life, the extent to which we hide what's really going on is the extent to which we are under the oppression of shame. When we are able to just show up with what is true of our lives, that's when you know that you've begun to become healed in this long journey of getting cleared out of shame. And the primary pastoral question that I have for us this morning is this, are there any ways that you are hiding from the presence of God? Is there anything that you are hiding from the presence of God? We get free of our shame when we allow ourselves to be found by God and we come out into the open, even carrying with you the stuff that might be associated with your shame. Like we don't know how it is or where or what specific thing in Jesus's ministry that this woman encountered. The text doesn't tell us what was so transformational about her encounter with Jesus, but this is a story of her response to the forgiveness. Your, your sins have been forgiven. What is happening in the story that we read is her response to something that she's already experienced. At some point leading up to this dinner, she hears that Jesus is coming nearby and she goes home to, to grab her jar of perfume and at some point in the evening, she makes the conscious decision to find the feet of Jesus. And what would, that, what would that be for you? To make a conscious decision, to make a willful decision to find the feet of Jesus and to wet his feet with her tears and to let down her hair and to fill the room with the scent of the perfume, the scent which would have reminded her of all of the nights and all of the men because that perfume was a tool of her trade. But the presence of God turned the fragrance of shame into a fragrance of love. That's how it works. And it's glorious. Man, I've been sitting with this passage for a couple weeks now, and I know you guys have had 30 minutes with it, but I really wish I could be in the room. I mean, I really want to be there. <laughs> because the experience of love pushes out the shame. The thing that heals our shame and draws us out of hiding is the love of God. I'm probably gonna say that 10 more times, so get your highlighter out. The love of God here is spoken of as the forgiveness of God. They're the same thing. It's a, it's a sense of welcome. And I don't know what this story does for you, but if a woman known in her village as a prostitute, a woman whose life externally has probably been falling apart for a long time, if she can show up and come out of hiding and extravagantly display love for God and Jesus praises her and says out loud the truest thing about her, your sins are forgiven, then I think I'm going to be okay with whatever it is that I'm ready to bring out into the open and set in front of Jesus. Whatever shame is still at work in me, pushing me into hiding, Lord, come and find it. Come and find it like a gentle pit bull in my house and carry it out. Take the shame and carry it away and chew it up. All of the parts of me that have yet to be birthed into new creation, 
Carry those things out. Here's the really complex thing about shame. The complex thing about shame is that the very thing that God wants to heal and love is the thing that's keeping you in hiding. And so it's like, what, how, how does this work? I'm hiding from God because of my shame and I'm hiding the things that I'm ashamed of and that's the thing that God wants to heal and so we sort of live like this. That's why it's so complex to get rid of shame. It's not something that we can get rid of on our own. And so God comes looking for us. Brings us to our second point, being found. Um, One of the earliest theological traditions, um, the one that gave us our first creeds and made a great deal of all of the things that we now hold like really tightly, those same group of theologians, they made a great deal of something else, which is that at the core of who you are and at the core of who I am is not something that is deficient. At the very core of you is God himself because God has stamped his image on you. And listen, I I know that some of you grew up in a church tradition that you were taught from a really young age that at the core of you is darkness, and that's not true. It's not true. God has made you and I to be like him, to be made in his likeness, and to love in the way that he loves. And the problem with shame as the belief that some, something is fundamentally wrong with us is that like all of the lies of the enemy, there is some little degree of truth in that lie. There is something wrong with us. Guys, sin is real. It wreaks havoc on our lives, but it's not the most fundamental thing about us. Fundamentally, there remains in us something that can never be lost. Let us make the human in our image, we read in Genesis. Let us make the human in our image according to our likeness. What is lost in the garden when this shame is introduced is our likeness of God. We have the image of God stamped on us and we have the likeness of God, the reality that we were made to be like God and this thing we lose but this thing never goes away. The early church father, uh, Basil of Caesarea, I love these guys' name, by the way. We should, we should, we should do this again. Um, Tyler of Portland. Um, the early church father, Basil of Caesarea, offered an analogy to try to help us like, really grab onto this concept of image and likeness and to make a distinction between made in the image and according to the likeness. And they they wanted to reassure us that fundamentally at the core of the human remains the good of God's own image in you. You bear God's image and something is not quite right. We have lost the likeness. And so Basil offers the picture of a mirror which in his time was made of polished metal I don't, I don't know how they did their hair back then. That seems, but this polished metal in the ancient world would often um, get rusty and they would have to kind of clear it off. And, and this mirror 
of being an image bearer is meant to reflect out into the world the glory of God's presence. That's you and me. We're made in the image of God. We bear the image of God. We are his representatives in creation. But the mirror has become rusty. And this rust is made up of all of the ways that we try to cope in our lives, that create distance between ourselves and God and distance between us and other people. The rust is the result of the shame. It puts us into hiding. But what happens is we try to pretend that the rust is not there. We're afraid to bring into community the reality of our lives. It keeps us in hiding. What the invitation is, is to show up rusty and to trust that God is in the process of clearing off that rust, to restore us to our image and our likeness. And this will take at least until the end of your life and possibly even longer. So we spend our whole life running away from allowing God to go to those really deep places in us because we're afraid. And so how do we get unstuck? We can't really pull this from the text that Luke gives us because um, it's, not, it's not there. Um, he doesn't give us the backstory of this woman, uh, the scene that we are watching unfold of. It happens after something that we don't even we don't even get let in on. But it's the response of letting the love of God find you and then love God back with the love that he has poured out into you. Or as John tells us, we love because he first loved us. So often we're trying to love with love that we don't yet have. And that creates problem in the relationships that we have. What the Christian story is, is to let yourself be opened up and loved fully by God. And then with the love of God that has filled you, now you can love other people. So we get unstuck and healed by letting God love us and watching him love us in the most tender places of our lives. And here's the thing. As we think about shame and all of the ways that things aren't working inside of us, you know, in my work as a, as a spiritual director, the thing I hear a lot of is how exhausted people are. People are really tired of trying to sort out what's happening on the inside. I was telling um, Bethany uh, yesterday that I think the only place I curse is in counseling. <laughs> it's sort of like, is that okay to say, by the way? <laughs> I was like, this guy curses. Um, it's like, seriously, we have to go after this again? Like, why, why will this not go away? And I just, listen, there is a work of participation in the thing that God is doing in you but there is also a part of this entire journey that is a bit passive, that we just need to receive from God what we ourselves cannot do for ourselves. And so I just felt, if there's like a sense of like, I am so tired 
of feeling the way that I feel. I'm so tired of all of the things that are robbing me of joy. I don't know about you, I have a list of a dozen things that I could share with you, but I won't, about the things that are going on inside of me that are robbing me of the joy of life. And I'm tired of trying to sort it out, and I just wanna say, God, would you just come and do it? And his answer is, that's what I'm doing. We have to move on from the hustle. Bernard of Clairvaux was one of the founding abbots of the Cistercian tradition within the monastic stream. And um, I'm gonna read to you a little passage from Bernard of Clairvaux because I find it really beautiful. He says this, he says, every soul burdened as it may be with sins, caught in the net of vice, seduced by pleasures, a captive in exile, imprisoned in this body, fixed fast in this clay, sunk in mire, weighed down by cares, absorbed in business, shrunken in fear, afflicted by sorrows, wandering in error, a prey to the anxieties and uneasy suspicions like a stranger in a hostile land. I mean, this guy's not leaving anything out. He's like talking about us. He goes on to say that even though this is our condition, that what we always have available to us and what is always with us is the image of God inside of us. And simply remembering and meditating on the fact that God has stitched himself to you and that we are made to be like him and that we breathe the breath that he first breathed into our lungs, just remembering that can pull us out of shame. What happens to us when we are found in the love of God, what God does for us is he comes to the very place in our life that we are hiding and that we are hiding from and he shows us that he can sit there with us. He can look directly at the most vulnerable place in our soul and in this place he can love us. And the way that we heal from our shame is to simply watch God love us in the places that are the hardest for us to look at. in order to be close to God. You have to be close to yourself and what's happening on the inside and some of the most painful moments of your life, the things that are lingering and nagging in your life as places of shame because that's where God is and he's waiting for you there. That's the place that he's looking for you.